What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with AJ Vaynerchuk. AJ was previously the COO of VaynerMedia, and he is also an incredible angel investor. With early stage investments in companies like Twitter, Uber, Venmo, Snapchat, Coinbase, and more. But today, he spends most of his time as the co-founder and CEO of the premier athlete representation firm Vayner Sports. In this conversation, we discuss the qualities that all world-class entrepreneurs share, the balance between hard work, family, and health, the future of athlete representation, the pros and cons of entrepreneurship and angel investing, and so much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with AJ, and I hope that you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe. J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Underdog Fantasy, the easiest and best way to play fantasy sports. Join a league and draft a team in minutes. They make it that easy, and yes, that simple. But if you'd like to spice things up, try their new Pick'em game. Just pick over or under on your favorite or least favorite player stats, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile app. Just pick between two and five players, and you can take home some cold, hard cash. Go to underdogfantasy.com and use code POMP. That's P-O-M-P, POMP, and get your first deposit doubled by Underdog today. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs POMP Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of POMP Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I have AJ Vaynerchuk with me here today. AJ, how are you doing, man? Joe, I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm pumped to talk to you today. I feel like we've been in and around each other. This is our first actual time talking in person, though. Yeah. Yeah. I got like a million questions to ask you. But first, I want to start with kind of just your background. I think that you and Gary, in my mind, your brother, have built an incredible business. You've done stuff on the media side and now on the sports agency side. But I have this theory, and maybe it's not even a theory. I think this is probably well known at this point, that 
everyone that's like somewhat successful in business from a hustle standpoint was just like an extreme hustler when they were a child. You know what I mean? Like I know Gary's stories. I'm assuming you have similar stories. Talk me through like, was this always in your DNA or did you become kind of on the business side afterwards? No, I never had a shot, you know, in, in terms of, you know, Gary's 11 years older than I am. And so every aspect of my personality had a, a good, healthy dosage of brainwash. I didn't choose to be a Jet fan. He made me, right? I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, listen, it would have been better if he picked the Giants. I would have had more fun growing up. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is. But, you know, my father's an entrepreneur. My brother's an entrepreneur. I grew up with the dinner table conversation being about business. Yeah, it, it was kind of unavoidable. Not that I was forced into it. I gravitated towards it. It was in my blood and I, it, was, it was what I was surrounded by and I loved it. You know, talking about the hustling stories, I think my version of that hustling story comes from my brother where, you know, you got to keep in mind 11 years apart. He's 18 when I'm seven. He's 22 when I'm 11. And one of my brother's hobbies was garage sailing, like literally going to flea markets and garage sailing. And I would tag along. You know what? It sounds fun to be 12 or 13 and running around in the car, listening to music with your brother, talking sports. And we would go to garage sales and he would teach me like, hey, you can buy this video game for a dollar and you can flip it for 20 on eBay. And so I went down that rabbit hole and the only traditional job I had growing up was I worked in a supermarket for like three weeks and then quit. I was on the computer all the time. And she's like, you can't be on the computer all the time. I'm like, I'm working. She's like, no, you're not. Like, ask Gary, I'm working. I I poke fun at my mom now. She takes the L on that one. She's gracious in that. I was in a place where it was crazy, man. Like, because of what Gary taught me and showed me. And because of what, you know, I learned and what my brother did for me, driving me around, my mom did for me driving around, I was making thousands of dollars a week running like a small scale eBay store. I would walk in to a garage sale and buy a mug for a dollar, a video game for a dollar, a stuffed animal for a dollar and turn that into a hundred bucks. Wait, you were making a thousand dollars a week at what age? I'd have to look. The first boon for me personally with this flip life, do you remember the bobblehead craze? Yeah. So this is a great example where it's better to be lucky than good. You know, I I like to fancy myself as a good operator, as a good businessman, but there's an enormous dosage of luck that came with this. There was a big run on bobbleheads when I was probably, call it 1999, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Like Cal Ripken had a bobblehead. King Griffey Jr. had a bobblehead. Then they went to managers with like Joe Torre and Lou Piniella. Those bobbleheads were ShopRite exclusives. ShopRite grocery store. And ShopRite, I believe 90-something percent of their locations were in New Jersey, where I lived. So I'm not kidding you. And I'll probably get panned for this, but it's the true story. I would go into a ShopRite at 13 years old with my mom. And I would walk into the ShopRite, maybe buy a bag of Cheetos and some candy, Lemonheads, and then sweep the floor of bobbleheads. I would buy every single bobblehead the store had. And I was growing around New Jersey and doing this. And I would buy like... 37 Cal Ripken bobbleheads and 24 Ichiros, $11 a piece. And then I would go on eBay and I would sell that Ichiro bobblehead to somebody in Seattle for 50 bucks. And it was just a, it was just a factory because I only had to take one picture of the Ichiro bobblehead and it was over, just rinse and repeat. And I just packaged it up and I had a system. My bedroom was a storage facility, a manufacturing facility. I was just going to ask what the house looked like because I can imagine that it was full. My mom wouldn't let me mess the house up, but she would let me mess my room up. And no joke, my mom, again, very fortunate to have my mom be so supportive and have my mom you know, available. And she didn't, she was a homemaker. So she had the time to drive her son to the post office. I literally would go to the post office every day with like 20 to 40 packages. Ship them out. That's amazing, dude. And so, I was making thousands of dollars at like thir- a week as thirteen. That obviously had a shelf life, 
that lasted a few months. And then, yeah, in high school, I was selling toys and video games and, you know, little trinkets and making thousands of dollars a week, probably making like $75,000 a year at 14, 15. And what were you doing with the money? Nothing. Yeah. I spent it all in college. I didn't work in college. I went to class and spent my money. You're probably the fucking man in college though. <laughs> Showed up with 50 grand in cash freshman year and they're like, who's this guy? It felt like 50 million. Yeah, exactly. You don't need that much in college, especially when you're drinking Keystone Light or whatever you're drinking. On top of it, I didn't drink until I was 21. You know, my family's from the former Soviet Union. Interesting. Wait, you guys owned a wine business, didn't you? Yeah. By the way, every one of my friends hated me in high school and in college being like, hey, your family owns one of the biggest liquor stores in the state and you can't hook us up with like a 30 rack. I was like, nope, don't got it. And why they wouldn't, you, you didn't want to, or your parents were against it? My mom was really against drinking at an early age. She really instilled it in us. You know, again, I won't go too deep, but family immigrated from the former Soviet Union. The drinking culture there is heavy. And I think my mom probably just overcorrected on it. My wife, if she hears this, will kill me. But like, I don't have a problem with my kids drinking, you know, at certain ages below 21, but it was really instilled in us and I followed suit with it. How much do you think your parents influenced how you and you and Gary turned out today? <sighs> An enormous amount. Just like I think anybody. I think, you know, obviously there's nature versus nurture. I think there's a heavy dosage of both. Obviously, nature has some role in it because my parents have three kids, my brother, my sister, and myself. And we're very similar in a lot of ways, but we're also very different in a lot of ways. I will note that I have a pretty bad cold right now. So if I sound low energy, I am lower energy than Gary, but not this much lower than him. Nah, you're bringing it, dude. You're good. So there's definitely a dosage of nature that I believe in, but the nurture part, our parents instilled a massive amount. What was really helpful for us is that I think my mom and my dad had two very different lanes where I think my mom taught me a lot about you know, empathy, interpersonal skills, big picture thinking. My dad taught me a lot about work ethic and honesty and integrity and reputation. And so they're, they're very different as people. And I think the children benefited from that. We, we got a wide net of lessons learned because they're both fantastic. You know, I ask this question a lot and it's fascinating because I feel like I get, you know, you get wide ranging answers for sure. No family is the same and everyone's different in that capacity. But ultimately there's like a few things that seem to overlap, at least in my opinion, right? It's that the parents of people that are successful, whether it's at a large scale or a smaller scale, a lot of them let their, their kids take risk, right? So they're not kind of like hovering over them at all times and making sure they don't get hurt and making sure they don't make mistakes and, and they allow them to do that, right? And it sounds like they allowed you guys to do that from a business perspective, running around town, right? You and Gary and doing these different things. But they also have some some sense of discipline, right? And, and principles and they establish that in people and say, you know, this is right, this is wrong. You're going to be punished if you do these separate things. So it's fascinating to hear kind of how, how much influence that's had on you also. Yeah. I, I would say that on your first point about risk, I think a word that's important to add in there, and I'm, I'm self-aware about it, and I do think it's meaningful, is um, privilege too, right? Like I think the ability to be risky as an entrepreneur, there's a heavy dosage of privilege that comes with that. There's a lot of people that want to be risky in business, but don't have the security blanket and the comfort that I had, right? I had two parents that were together. My father was a successful entrepreneur. My mom stayed at home, right? If my mom had to work, right? Like a lot, a lot, a lot of kids' parents do. And I couldn't get to the post office to ship because I've lived in the middle of nowhere. There was nobody coming to my door picking up packages in 1999. If, if my father wasn't a successful entrepreneur that afforded my mother the opportunity to stay at home with her children and they're together and she could get me to the post office, I can't sell any of these things. And then same thing with even starting VaynerMedia, right? I'm very proud of the success that I have had. And I think you're right. Risk is a heavy dosage, but I think you can't say the word risk without privilege too, in the sense that I was a co-founder of a media agency at 22 due to privilege and nepotism, right? Because my brother knew who I was. 
knew the, the dude that he brainwashed and built in some regards. And so I was able to be the COO of a social media ad agency in 2009. And a lot of that risk came with the privilege of, I knew that if the agency failed, I could just get a job at my dad's wine shop or that I could go back and live at home and, you know, the bills were paid and I didn't have to pay rent or a mortgage. And so, you know, I want to latch on to that because I think it's important. And it's something that, you know, what I do now in terms of representing athletes, I think my favorite part about that is it really took me out of my bubble. I, I, I grew up in a bubble. I grew up in a nice, safe town in New Jersey. I went to a private college at Boston University. And then I lived in New York City. But when I got to the sports agency representation space, it took me throughout the entire country. And as anybody knows, following sports, there's so many different you know, backgrounds and stories and adversity. And that exposure to that adversity, I think, helped me be more aware of the good fortune that I had, right? I think I would have been successful no matter what. But uh, it, it, man, that, that security blanket and that privilege is a big factor. Oh, it's massive, dude. I tell people all the time, and, and some people get upset because it sounds kind of ridiculous to say, but I'm a white male, born in America, right? Two-parent household, didn't yep. have to worry about food or shelter growing up, got an education, right? Like exactly. those things seem very trivial to some people, but at the end of the day, it, it, it makes a massive, massive, massive difference. By the way, to your point, my mother and father came over to this country in their early 20s. They were in the former Soviet Union. If they don't make that decision, what do I become? What is my brother? We always joke, my brother probably wouldn't be alive with his personality and that culture. I think he would have been offed by now. So I, I think he's out and I'm a tenth of the man that I've been able to build because my parents came to this country. They didn't have that same luxury. But what they did, what my father as an entrepreneur accomplished, taking his wife and his three-year-old child, my mom got pregnant on the way to America with our sister, and then to build what he built, 10 times more impressive than anything I'll be able to do. Because where I got to start, where he got to start. Are they still your biggest role models? Yeah, and I'll throw my brother in there too. You know, at the, at calling a spade a spade. He's 11 years older and he's my brother. He's my business partner. He's my mentor. He's my best friend. And then the other thing, part of the sacrifice my father made and part of how he's wired is that my dad was super busy growing up. He worked his face off. And so as much as Gary is my brother, there's no denying there's a small part that he was also kind of like a father figure given the age gap. Yeah, I, I, I can't not include my brother in that. And then, you know, I love my sister to death and I don't want to leave her out. She did not take a path of business when I was growing up. She's in business now, but she was a teacher at first. And so she didn't have the same level of influence because we didn't have the same interest graph or the same career aspirations. But, you know, she, she and I are incredibly close. We talk every day. I think having a strong additional female presence in my life helps shape who I am too. It's important. I love it, man. I love it. All right, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about kind of the empire that you and your family are building, right? So I think everyone has heard of, you know, they hear VaynerX, they hear VaynerMedia, they know you guys have a venture fund, they hear Vayner Sports now. Like, what does the whole business look like from a 30,000 foot view? Yeah, it's a lot. I think it's important for a distinction to be made in the sense that that Vayner empire, because we got Vayner this and Vayner that. It did start with my brother and I in 2009, but I did leave that infrastructure and that empire, so to speak, back in 2016. And so a lot of what my brother is accomplishing now and has accomplished over the last five years and will accomplish in the next 50, I am nowhere near the integral part of it as I once was. I made a personal decision to take a step back to disassociate myself from the vast nature of probably the 15 different businesses my brother is running right now. And why did you do that? Partly personal preference, partly health related. I suffer from something called Crohn's disease and my Crohn's is at its worst from stress yep. and running at the speed that my brother runs and being in that kind of passenger seat with him or co-pilot seat with him 
was it sustainable for me? And I wanted to do things I was more interested in. What we were doing were not my passions. Business is a passion, but the industries we were targeting were not. And so I, I took a back seat. I stepped away. I exited for the most part. I'm still on the board and still have a small equity share, a very small equity share in the Vayner X holding company. But I took some time off and decided to do the sports agency and to push my chips into one focus, athlete representation. And, and it's been fun because I've been able to focus on that. And I've also been able to take other parts of business that I care about like NFT and crypto, and recently incorporate it into the athlete rep business as well. So that's kind of where things sit. You know, VFriends, for example, I am nothing more than my brother's biggest supporter in VFriends. I chime in and have the luxury of coming in and out of team meetings because I'm friendly with all the VFriends operators. And you know, some of them are my personal friends, some are people that I worked with at X in my prime. But again, any and all success that VFriends have, that's a credit to my brother and his team. And I want to distinguish that. But yeah, Vayner Sports, along with my co-CEO, Greg Getsky, and then my brother's the chairman of Vayner Sports. That's where, you know, if you want to look at the impact that the Vayner brand is having, that's where most of it's being spent. And then, yeah, I'm involved in the fund too. I don't want to, I don't want to discount myself too much. I'm a partner in our, our venture capital fund focusing on Web3. How long has the venture capital fund been active? I know you told me before we started that you guys were, I think, a Series B investor in Coinbase and you've hit on some other Correct. big ones. What else have you guys invested in? So it started off, we were angels, Gary and I. Gary first, then me. I had some really nice early success being an individual investor in things like Uber and Venmo. We parlayed the angel success into having a fund in like 2014. We did Coinbase Series B. We did Snap. And you guys raised outside capital or you basically funded it yourself? We did outside capital. Gotcha. Yeah. One LP. Our business partner, Stephen Ross, who we sold a small piece of the Vayner X holding company to. So we did that in like 14, 15, 16. And then we actually stopped doing venture capital. That's when I left the holding company and the venture world. And we were inactive for the most part. Gary did some stuff personally. I did a tiny, tiny bit personally, but we're pretty inactive for about four years. And then when we saw NFTs a little over a year ago, maybe 15, 16 months ago, we reactivated it and we did Vayner Fund 2. So back in 14, 15, 16, that was Vayner Fund 1. We did 2 in late 20, in pretty much 2021. And now we're doing Vayner Fund 3 in 2022. And what was the thought process behind starting it again? Just too many opportunities out there in the market that you wanted access to? Yeah, too many opportunities. We were too well positioned, too passionate. You know, we stopped doing it because we weren't passionate. We're operators. So Gary and I fight the investor hat anyway. We just saw the space too clearly. The same way we saw, I would actually argue even more, you know, I think the ultimate, a massive reason why VaynerMedia was so successful, you know, that's a, an ad agency that is like 1500 plus employees now that Gary and I started 13 years ago. Huge reason why that was successful is because we saw social media well before our competition in the ad world and we had massive conviction. It was deja vu. When we got exposed to Web3 and NFTs, Gary and I spoke for like two hours and we're like, I haven't felt this way in over a decade. And so we, we just knew, we just knew. Yeah. I want to talk about this for a second because it feels like you've been on both sides now. And this is something that myself and my brothers think a lot about, right? So if you don't know or anyone else doesn't know, I have four brothers. So there's five of us in total. We have different careers to some degree, but a few of us do content and we own and operate media businesses, right? They're content businesses independently owned that generate cash flow from advertisers. And a lot of times what we do is we use that cash flow to reinvest in companies and the product, whatever it is, right? So we do that. We had a fund. My brother started a rolling fund on AngelList a few years ago. It got up to about $20 million in annual invested capital. 
we close that fund down, right? Because you're dealing with a bunch of LPs. And at some degree, it just gets really tiring to, to constantly having, not only with LPs, but founders too, right? You're, you're constantly supporting people and, and, and all of that. So yeah. that got shut down and we opened a family office. So we solely invest personal money and, and, and family money now. And we go back and forth on this all the time because one, like that's certainly one avenue you could stay and you could run the fund and you can make two and 20 and get access to these great deals and use your audience to get access and do these things. Two, you could shut it down. You could do the family office. And three, what we think a lot about too is like, hey, if we like operating and we're good operators, right? We've built these businesses and these audiences. Like, why don't we just start and fund these companies ourselves and capture much more of that upside? Yeah. And it seems like that's something that you and Gary have thought a lot about too. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And what I would say is that it's a, I think it's a never ending battle. I think it's a fluid conversation. I think we feel differently every year. Like I know where my mindset is this year versus where my mindset was last year versus the year before and the year before, you know, humans change, people change, situations change, right? I have three kids under five now that impacts the way I think about life and work-life balance and the opportunities that I take. And so, yeah, what you just described is a nice component and the meat of a lot of the conversations my brother and I have as well. And I don't think there's a perfect answer and it has to be catered to everybody's personal goals, desires, and current situations. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the sports agency, right? I think yeah. people were probably a little bit surprised when they saw you kind of, obviously, uh, I, I think you said you took a year off, but maybe it was a few months, right? And then you went in. It was supposed to be a year. It ended up a few months. Yeah, Why? You just got bored? <laughs> I just caught the itch. I could only walk the dog and play so many rounds of golf. I love it. I got the itch quick. I love it. So talk to me about the sports agency. Why did you guys do it? And what is different about your agency versus kind of the traditional model? The why is easy. It's passion. I'm a fanatical sports fan. All my clients know it. All my football players joke about when they are about to play the Jets and like, who are you rooting for? And like all that stuff. They all know it. It's well documented that my brother and I bleed green and I grew up a Jet fan. Diehard Knicks fan too. Disappointing year for me as a fan. So yeah, passion is the why. You know, I got exposed through the world of venture capital to a lot of athletes and that gave me some inspiration as well. I had the good fortune of spending some time with guys like Draymond Green, Carmelo Anthony, and Dominican Sue, you know, call it seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. And insight into how athletes were evolving and where their interests were. I felt like my background with Vayner Media and the fund was like a perfect expertise to bring into athlete representation. And as far as the differentiation, I think it's that. I don't look like your typical sports agent. I'm a certified NFL agent. I'm a certified MLB agent. I'm a certified NBA agent. If you look at every one of my peers, they don't look like me. So that's different. And I think that's most illuminating probably from what we just did this week. We launched an NFT project called the Vayner Sports Pass. And there's nobody in this ecosystem that could have pulled it off the way that we did. I'm not saying we did it perfectly. We made some mistakes. There were some bumps and bruises along the way. And we're, we're working through those and, and we're settling in nicely. You know, in talking with our clients, we have over 100 clients, professional athletes across baseball, football, mixed martial arts, and gaming. And when you talk to our clients about it, when I told them about the Vayner Sports Pass, like the common reaction is like, this is why you guys are so different. This is why this is so incredible. And I thrive on innovation. I thrive on disruption, right? When we started the ad agency in 09, everybody looked at us funny. We were talking about why Facebook and Twitter were going to become core pillars of business. And every C-suite executive in 2009 said, that's just that app that my son or daughter tries to find a date on in college or Twitter. That's just the app where they tell me what they're having for lunch. There's no business to be done there. And now so, if Facebook advertising shut down, 90% of the small businesses in America would shut down. That's right. And so I thrive on innovation disruption. And when I enter an industry like the sports agency space, it's what I want to do. 
And so I think we're, I think we're pulling it off. I feel great about it. So for people that don't know, like how does this model work and how can it be disrupted? Right? Because the way I think about sports agency is it's very rigid, right? And it's structured. And like, there's a one model that everyone kind of uses. You represent the athlete. Maybe you have some kind of wealth management relationship off of it or some kind of other ancillary offering, but it's really just athlete representation when it comes time to the contract and you get a percentage of that contract. How are you guys doing it and how is it different from everyone else? Yeah. So, I mean, foundationally, there's a lot of things that are the same. There are things that we can't change. There are aspects of it that are governed by the unions. And so there's things that we need to conform to. And again, I think if you look at this NFT project, it's a great example of how we're able to identify a lane in which we can disrupt. And so this project has generated millions in revenue already 48 hours in, and we're taking a significant chunk of that revenue and reinvesting it in partnership with our athletes. So that we've created a whole new revenue stream off the field, outside the octagon, that will be provided to our athletes. And we're also exposing them to an industry that I believe is to be the future. Well, so how, do, so how does that work? Is there IP being used? And are you basically like funneling that back into a holding company? Like, just talk me through kind of the dynamics. We're not relying on their IP. Okay. That was important to me because it's the Vayner Sports Pass. It's not the client X, Y, and Z Pass. I'm not naive to the fact that clients come and go. We don't have 100% retention, right? Sometimes... Uh, we part ways with clients and vice versa. Clients retire, different clients get hot at different moments. And so we're not relying on their IP, but what we are doing is we're providing our holders utility. And within that utility is access and opportunity. So for example, we're going to do things like in-person client experiences for our holders. So, we're, and then in turn, we're going to pay our clients their rate. So if one of my clients gets 10 grand for an hour's worth of their time, and we do five to 10 deals a year like that, we're going to pay them that rate of 10 grand for an hour for them to do something within our community. And here's the situation. Could I go to a lot of our clients and just ask for the favor? Like, hey, will you spend an hour with our fans? 90% of them would say yes, but we don't want to do that. We want to be partners and we want, we all want to win because we're monetizing this thing. If we're monetizing it, we want our clients to monetize too. Yeah. I love it because the incentives are aligned also, right? If the pass holders get access, right? You guys earn money. And then if the athlete comes, they earn money exactly. and you start to see this nice kind of flywheel exactly. of aligned incentives. So that's cool. I like that. Okay. So what do you think is going to change, I guess, about the sports industry from an investment perspective, right? I think we've gone through this shift now from an athlete investing perspective where everyone used to want sponsorship deals, right? Hey, let's get some extra cash flow coming in outside of kind of my traditional salary. Then we switched to a model that went to equity ownership, right? So the last decade or two decades, everyone's been focused on trying to get equity in companies. Now, back to my point earlier, what me and my brothers think a lot about is I think athletes in particular also want to start funding some of these businesses themselves, just partnering up with good world-class entrepreneurs, giving them capital and going to start the business so they own a meaningful percentage of the equity. What are your thoughts on that? And like, what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah. So to that point, important for me to note and clarify that I'm not a registered investment advisor. Our unions, you know, the MLB Player Association, the NFL Player Association, the NBA Player Association are very clear on what an agent can and can't do as it pertains to financial advice. And so I'm very diligent about following those rules. I wish those rules were a little bit more accommodating to somebody like me, but I also have empathy for my conversations with them that they acknowledge my background and my areas of expertise, but they said, I can't be an exception to the rule. And if they broaden that rule, I think it probably brings more danger to the athlete than the benefit, which I agree with. So I have to navigate within that. I think the the role that I can play is just exposing my clients to industries and exposing clients to the network that Gary and I have. But beyond that, I am a little bit handcuffed, unfortunately, in terms of what I can and can't do. But yeah, athletes have an appetite, the same way we talked about it, to have significant chunks of opportunities and 
to be more in control. And it's just really exciting times. I think what's cool for me too, especially with name, image, and likeness, NIL, I'm getting more and more exposure to the younger athlete. You know, I always talk to, you know, like a client of mine, DJ Uyangale, the Clemson quarterback. I first got to know DJ when he was 16. So I was always willing to get to know a great talent and a great kid young. But NILs ramp that up. Every day that goes by, kids are getting smarter, right? Like the average 18-year-old kid today that I talk to in the world of sports versus five years ago is drastic in terms of their entrepreneurial energy, their intellect, their appetite. I think we've got great role models in sports these days influencing these young men and women. I think it's an exciting time for athletes and just individuals and personal brands in general. DJ is a good example because I'm not sure of the exact structure, but my guess is that you guys probably couldn't have had a meaningful relationship before NIL actually was implemented. Yeah. How, how did that change your business? Yeah, it changed our business a lot. So we could have a meaningful relationship. It just it wouldn't be a relationship that could be based on business. So for example, for the two and a half years that I knew DJ before NIL, it was a relationship of just getting to know one another as humans and me getting to know his family with the idea that if NIL never existed, by the time he decided to go professional, I'd hope I'd be in a position where I built enough trust and a reputation with him that I'd make it an easy decision for him to hire me as his agent when he goes pro. With NIL, instead of that dating phase being another two years, we actually get to be business partners now. I represent DJ for marketing now. There's no contract for us at the professional level. It's not allowed as per the NCAA, but he is a client of Vayner Sports for marketing only. And so now our relationship has been able to be deeper because I've been able to be more involved and to deliver on my promises. Whereas all of our relationship, for the most part, because there's no benefits that you can give a collegiate athlete, would have to be words. But now he's seeing my actions because I represent him. And so, yeah, NIL has changed the landscape in that regard in a big way. And see, so I, I think a pessimist would look at that and say, hey, this is obviously benefiting the agent. They get to reach out to players earlier. They get to work with them. They get to establish that kind of trust. But an optimist might say, this is good for the athlete too, right? Because before they sign with an agent, they get to see how they work. They get to see if they can deliver on their promises and so forth. It's a win for everybody in that regard. I would actually argue that the pessimist would say, oh, you're ruining the amateur nature of sports. These kids don't play for the love of the game anymore. They just play for the money. This or the other thing. It's like, please. Those aren't even pessimists anymore. Those are idiots. <laughs> I would agree with that. Like, please. Like, I have a client that's an NFL player now and he's doing great. But when he was in college, he was the face of his program and he lived a terrible lifestyle because he had no money, right? Yeah. I mean, we've all heard stories, right? There's athletes that literally can't get their families to championship games because their families exactly. can't afford to travel. Exactly. And like, it's terrible. Why? Why is that right? They're making the institution a ton of money. They're making all the brands a ton of money. Why aren't the kids making money? And what bothers me even more, you know, the client I just mentioned, that bothers me a lot. And that's unfair. I'm glad though he went on, he went pro, he got drafted, he's making money, he's doing well, he's going to win. Comma, what bothers me even more than that is, and I, I think I've made a, a video about this maybe a year ago, Florida Gulf Coast University, Dunk City. Yep. They made that incredible Cinderella run and they were the coolest, hottest thing in college basketball as a 15 seed, beating teams, dunking, everything, right? Not one of those kids from the starting five or the sixth man and the rest of the bench ever made it into the NBA. Not one. And a lot of them played overseas and maybe they made a couple hundred grand a year and varying levels. Some played in Turkey and some played in Asia and Russia, yada, yada. The amount of money they should have made coming off that tournament and during the tournament, it bothers me they didn't get that opportunity. And I'm excited for the net. You know, frankly, actually great example. It, it couldn't have worked out better. I can't remember the kid's name. So bad job by me. 
but the St. Peter's sixth man. Yeah, Doug Eddard or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Doug Eddard. He got to deal with Buffalo Wild Wings like two days later. Dunk City should have had that. And I'm really glad that Doug got that opportunity. He deserved it. Have you seen any negatives from this, right? Like our athletes, uh, right? Because again, yeah. playing the, yeah. the devil's advocate here, people would say athletes aren't going to be as focused. This is ruining college sports, all of that, those kind of lines. Have you seen any yeah. of that happening from your seat? Yeah, absolutely. There's negatives. I'm not going to paint this fairy tale picture that everything's positive. In my opinion, if we're doing a seesaw, the pros are heavily, all the weight is on the pro, but there's still some cons on the other side of the seesaw. I think the biggest negative that I've seen personally, I think it creates a new layer of pressure for a young athlete that they typically would have waited until they turned pro for in two ways. One, from fans. I think it's created this additional, you know, fans are tough on college athletes as is, but now that they're making money, often cases more money than the fan, you you got like a 43-year-old fan in a certain in the state of Oklahoma, bent out of shape that the quarterback at OU is making more money than him or her. Like that's a new dynamic and that's pressure for the kid and that stinks. And then the other one, I haven't really experienced much of it, but I've heard about it is like the pressure within the family, right? You're an 18 year old kid and you're making more money than your dad or your mom. And that's a new dynamic. And that usually waited until they were 21 or 22 in the football world, more like 19 in basketball because you can be one and done. So just that stress starts sooner. But I think it's most the time. Yeah, I would agree that's a negative, but the other side of me would also say that it's slightly a positive, right? Because you get it out of the way early sure. before you have the opportunity to make more. So, right, if you're if you're a star quarterback, yeah. you make a million dollars a year, you get family pressure, you get pressure in college. Obviously, it's worth it to not have any of that play really well and get to the NFL and get a multi-million dollar contract. But if you're getting paid in college, right? I think about it when it comes to investing, right? What are the what are the simplest ways to get more educated about something? It's to just do it, get involved, make some mistakes, put some skin in the game, right, et cetera. Those are all the same things that everyone always says. And I think it applies the same way here where it's like, get those issues out of the way, right? Buy a car, do, do the stupid shit that you're going to do regardless. And then by the time you get there, figure it out and, and, and know what is good and what's not good. I think that's valid. The only counter, slight counterpoint, devil's advocate, I would say is just like, at what point is it too young? Yeah, because there's high schoolers. There's high schoolers now. Yeah, there's, there's high school kids in California making money because California allows it. A lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that would be my only point. But for the most part, I agree with you. Yeah. All right. So I want to touch on a couple other things, which is like how you deal with, with operating these businesses and family and health and all that stuff. How have you been able to navigate kind of being extremely busy? I'm sure you work extremely hard. I know that these businesses, not only from a content perspective, but actually operating these entities take a lot of time, effort, et cetera. How have you been able to manage that? And how has your philosophy around that changed when it comes to kind of your family and your personal life over time? Yeah, it's changed a lot. In terms of managing it, the number one word is effort. I guess the number two word is intent. I've not been a good father or husband for the last two days. I can say that. I spoke to my wife about it prior and I said, hey, I have a feeling I'm going to be a bad husband and father for the next two to three days. I hope you know that it's not my intent, but there's some circumstances in play that are meaningful for my business and our family that may lead me that path. And so communication, I guess, is the third important word, right? And so it ebbs and flows. I'm not a perfect husband and father or brother or son every single day. I'm not the best and top performing CEO every single day, right? Like the same way the best quarterback or the best point guard has games where they throw a bunch of interceptions or have a bunch of turnovers. Nobody's perfect every single day. And so I think just acknowledging that, trying really hard, having the right intent, coming from a good place. I'm somebody that prides myself on efficiency. I think I do squeeze a great amount of output out of every minute and every hour. I think that's part of it. I learned that from growing Vayner Media. 
we grew from like two to 400 employees in four years at one point in the beginning. Weren't you managing like a hundred and something or like you were, what were you the COO at the time? What were you? Yeah, COO number two, Gary CEO. You know, when I was 24, we had 250 employees and I was a COO. Holy shit. Yeah. What did they say when a 24 year old walked in the board meeting to tell them his thoughts on what was going on? It was a mixed bag. Yeah. I got laughed out of a lot of rooms and I got, you know, there, there was and that's also, nothing against got, you, right? Like you could be the smartest 24-year-old in the world, literally smarter than anyone, and, and, and they would still do that. Yeah. Other issue is I was 24 and I looked 17. I, I had a baby face. I'm a little bit more weathered now with you know three kids under five these last five years. But when I was 24, I would get carded at maybe a freaking rated R movie, let alone a bar. So yeah, I, you know, a lot of people laughed me out of the room. The good news is like what I love about business, I call business the fifth major sport. Because it's a sport because there's a scorecard, right? And what I mean by that is when I walked into the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company and I said, hey, this is what's going to happen in the next three years and why it's important, X, Y, and Z. And I got laughed out of the room by the CEO, the CSO, the CMO. When I went on to be right, you know, Gary and I got a couple of those calls and kudos to those people. We got calls from CMOs at major organizations saying, hey, I didn't see your vision last year. I see it now. Can VaynerMedia come and help us? That happened. And that was the best. Yeah. Effort, intent, communication. Those are the three most important aspects of balancing it all. Yeah. It's so funny because I always think back to when I was younger, I used to think like, Hey, these people at these really important jobs and these really important roles, they know everything, right? Like just trust what they say, do all these things. And at the end of the day, it literally couldn't be more, more false, right? You, you see how these disruptors come in and they do things differently and it changes over time. And maybe it takes a day, maybe it takes a year, maybe it takes 10 years, but ultimately a lot of times they're proven to be right and circumstances change said something really powerful and it's going to come off as egotistical, but it was enlightening for me. To your point, I looked at people's titles and their years of experience and I put them on a pedestal. But in my early twenties, I walked into those rooms and I kind of digested what was going on and I analyzed, I got to experience those relationships. It was eye-opening in terms of there's a lot of factors in play when it comes to where people get to. And we go back to things like privilege and nepotism and I'm a beneficiary of those things, but it was eye-opening for me. In every industry that I've been, venture capital, media and advertising, sports, I've consistently been taken aback by the quality. And by the way, sometimes positive. Like I've met some absolute people that I put on the highest of pedestals through it in business. I have respect for a lot of people. But yeah, that, that, that's a great call out that you just brought up. It, it resonated with me. What do you think is like one non-intellectual quality, I'll call it, that's super important? Is it kindness? What, what is it in business that has helped you a lot? Great question. I can't help but steal from my brother. My brother talks about this stuff all the time, right? Like this is... Well, that question is at the core of how my brother runs and operates his businesses and his life. And obviously I've been influenced by that. For those listening, it's a little bit of a cop-out answer, but I believe it, empathy. Because empathy is not just, not just like the ability to feel badly for somebody in there. Like empathy, the way I think about empathy, it's not the ability to feel bad for something that has something unfortunate happen to them. It's the ability to understand the point of view and the perspective and the situation and somebody else's perspective. And that's a superpower in my book when it comes to business. Have you ever run into the issue of like trying to make too many people happy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Have you gotten better at that over time? Yeah. Cause th this is a selfish question, right? Because naturally it sounds again, egotistical or whatever, but I, I feel like I run into this problem yeah. all the time where innately I want to make people feel good, yeah. right? You want to make people feel happy. You want to do things yeah. that benefit them. And a lot of times it can cause challenging circumstances or cause difficult scenarios. So I'm curious if yeah. you've seen that in yourself and how you've gotten over it over time. A thousand percent. I have a giant, I guess this is called a, uh, what is that? Not a poster, whatever. I got a giant sign right across my desk, big font. It's probably two feet tall, three feet wide. 
looking up at it now, says you are not responsible for other people's feelings. That's what it says. Now, that is not to be interpreted as you can be an asshole. It's just that because I'm empathetic and because I do believe I'm a people pleaser and the majority of my career is in client services, right? Whether it's Fortune 500 executives or athletes, I do have a tendency to really try to make everybody happy. And in the real world, that's not always possible. You just got to understand that to be true. And so it's something I work on. So again, one of those things that I think is a never ending battle because it's deeply instilled in me. Yeah, it's something I think about all the time. Something that I use to help me. I'm somebody that is a big believer in mental health and mental performance. When I was at my darkest moments with my disease, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago, I went to therapy. It was massively beneficial. I'm currently not in therapy, but if I need to, I'll go back in a blink. And then on the flip side, in a world where maybe therapy you can consider in sports terms as defense, I'm on the offense now where I utilize you know mental performance coaches. And that's one of those topics that we work on to make me a better, more effective operator and to be just running at the highest levels, the most optimized version of myself. Do you use a whoop or an eight sleep? Don't. Sure. Yeah, we got to get yeah. you that, dude. It's kind of a cop out again, right? Because I they're sponsors of the show. But you know, I only work with four or five sponsors at a time. And, and I could work with plenty of people, to be honest. Right. And the reason why I work with them is because I believe so much in how much of a difference it makes. I wear it, I use it, et cetera. Because I think that that's like the that's the foundation of everything you want to do when it comes to business, yeah. to, to family, to everything, right? It's just mental health, physical health, et cetera. Yeah. The one thing I'll say, and I'm very, very blessed. I am a champion sleeper. Champion. What do you mean? Like you just go to bed and you're knocked out deep sleep the whole night? I fall asleep in 15 seconds and wake up when my alarm goes off. That happens a lot. And how many hours do you sleep a night? I get seven or eight most often. Not this oh, one. Oh, that's amazing. I'm a big sleeper. I'm a big believer in sleeper. My wife is awfully envious of my sleeping ability. She's naturally not good. And now the kids are young. And my, my one-year-old was up. I was actually to that point. I was up at three in the morning last night with my one-year-old. But outside of outside factors of babies crying at night, or babies being sick, I am an incredibly fortunate sleeper. Yeah, I love that. I think that's super important. And it's made a huge difference in my life when I started putting an emphasis on it, right? Just like deep sleep, yeah. eight hours a night. And, and one of the things is it, it's kind of weird because it connects the two products, but I had Will Ahmed on the podcast, who's the CEO of Whoop. And he was like, dude, I can tell instantly if someone is, if they don't sleep six hours a night, they're unhappy. And if they sleep over that, they're probably happy. Right. And he's just like, that's a barrier for me. And he studied yeah. literally thousands of hours of this data. And he's like, oh, it's, yeah. it's very yeah. obvious yeah. to me that that is like one of the biggest factors you can think of when it comes to the quality of someone's life. I agree. All right. So last question, personal investments. How do you think about your personal portfolio today? Is it mostly equity in these businesses? Are you in a lot of different cryptos, NFT stocks, et cetera? Yeah, I'm probably semi irresponsibly over leveraged in the world of crypto and NFTs, if I'm being honest. But again, I Same. have the privilege based on prior success. And I do have a little rainy day fund and things like that, that if it all goes south, you know, I'll still be able to pay the mortgage and things like that. But yeah, from a personal perspective, you know, this is not financial advice and I really wouldn't recommend it, but I am, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty big believer in NFTs and crypto and Web3. I feel like we're going to have to do a whole nother episode on that because I know, I, I know you and Gary have done your homework on it and you guys are building some incredible things in that world. But AJ, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. And we'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, man, this was a blast. I'm glad we finally got to do it. I think the timing was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.